Well, good morning. It's uh, so good to see you guys this morning. And we want to say a special uh, hello to those who are watching online this morning. My name is Dustin Scott. I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here at Hillcrest. And uh, we are uh, just so thankful to be able to open up God's word together this morning. I uh, hope that you all had a terrific Thanksgiving. Our family, uh, we received uh, a sweet little blessing about two months ago uh, with the arrival of our new nephew, uh, Mr. Paxton. So obviously, uh, this year, he was the star of the show at Thanksgiving uh, for our family. It, uh, it would have been a completely uh, perfect holiday weekend for us, except for um, hashtag Auburn. Quit that. We're in the house of the Lord. The Lord is not like that. I tell you what, death, taxes, and Alabama kickers making a field goal. Those things, not going to happen. All right, moving on. This morning, there are two types of people in this room. There are team thanks, no Christmas until Thanksgiving. And then there's team Christmas season begins November the 1st, right? There's two different teams in here. However, regardless, we can officially stand united today, all agreeing that we are officially in the Christmas season, regardless of which team you're on, right? So as we begin this morning, I want you to do me a favor. On the count of three, I want you to shout out to me your favorite Christmas movie, okay? Super easy, okay, on the count of three. Here we go, one, two, three. Wow, that is amazing. Okay, Die Hard is not a Christmas movie. Um, From what I can tell, though, with the exception of the one Die Hard over here, it sounded like every one of you stated the only correct answer, which, of course, is... Home alone. Okay, so in all in all seriousness, did did anyone did anyone say a Christmas carol? Is a Christmas carol anybody's favorite? Okay, great. So you have several different versions to choose from if that's yours, right? There's uh, everywhere from the Mickey's Christmas Carol to Scrooge to the Jim Carrey version that came out a few years ago. But all of them, they share the same basic idea. There is a mean, greedy, selfish man who gets a visit from the ghost of Christmas past, Christmas present, and Christmas future. And he gets to evaluate decisions that he had made in the past. He gets to listen in on what people think about the person he is. But what really causes him to change is when he sees a vision of his own funeral. He, he sees what his old life had led up to. He hears how he is remembered. And when he sees the death of his old self, he decides that he is going to essentially rewrite his obituary. And from then on, he becomes kind, generous, and beloved. We know the story. So let me switch gears real quick and talk about a real life Ebenezer Scrooge. His name was Alfred Alfred's family uh, was well known in the weapons manufacturing industry. Alfred's father had built underwater mines for Russia. Alfred himself was famous for developing new types of explosives. 
He had 355 registered patents for detonators, blasting caps, and smokeless gunpowder. In 1867, he invented dynamite. He had built a tremendous family fortune and had built almost 100 factories to keep up with the demand for explosives and ammunitions. In 1888, Alfred's brother Ludwig died from a heart attack, but a local French newspaper mistakenly reported that it had been Alfred who had died. The headline in the newspaper read, the merchant of death is dead. And it went on to say that the man who became rich by finding ways to kill more people faster than ever died yesterday. It wasn't long after that that Alfred sat down to rewrite his will. He, he stipulated that the vast majority of his estate, the equivalent of $265 million in today's economy, would go to the establishment of annual cash prizes that would go to those who, quote, in the preceding year shall have conferred the greatest benefit on mankind. The most prestigious of the awards was the peace prize awarded to the, to the individual who, uh, quote, had done the most or the best work for fraternity between the nations and the abolition and reduction of standing armies and the formation of spreading of peace. The Nobel Peace Prize remains to this day one of the greatest honors that can be given to a human being. You see, Alfred Nobel for that's who we've been talking about this entire time, got a glimpse of the death of his old self. And like Scrooge, it gave him an opportunity to write a brand new ending for his life. And today, no one remembers him as the merchant of death. Instead, they remember him as the promoter of peace. You see, both the fictional Ebenezer Scrooge and the real-life Alfred Nobel were given an opportunity to rewrite their life story after being declared dead. Church, this morning, as we continue our journey through the book of Colossians, we're going to explore this idea of, well, what if we could rewrite our life story? If you have been with us over the past uh, several weeks, Pastor Jim has been leading us through the book of Colossians. Over the past two weeks, uh, we've been studying the first portion of Colossians 3, where we, were first, we first talked about things that followers of Jesus should, uh, we should put off, things that we should not have part of our lives. And then last Sunday, uh, we talked about things that we should put on as followers of Christ. The general idea has been that new people require a new look. Well, today we're gonna continue on this journey as we look at this idea of how shall we live? And so read with me in Colossians 3. We're gonna be in verses 15 through 17 this morning. Let's read these together. It says, and let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace and always be thankful let the message about Christ in all its richness fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom he gives. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts and whatever you do or say, 
Do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for this time to open up your word and study it. And Father, we ask that you would do what your word says it does, Lord. And may it sharpen us and challenge us and train us and equip us, Lord. So may we uh, be pure in our worship through studying your word this morning. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Let me ask you a question. Who are you? I don't, I don't mean your name. I mean like at your core. Who are you? And once you answer that question, then the follow-up, is, the follow-up uh, question then is, how did you arrive at that answer? This morning, we are going to dialogue uh, about our identity and how our lives should reflect our identity. However, before we get there, I want to spend a few minutes talking through what our identity is not. So if you have your worship guides, you can follow along with us. The first blank there we're gonna begin discussing is our identity defined. You see, in our text today, Paul gives us a pretty clear understanding of who we should be when he says, let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace and always be thankful, right? To live in peace and always be thankful. This sounds really great. But if we can be honest with one another, sometimes life does not seem too peaceful, does it? And sometimes it's really hard to always be thankful. You see, part of the reason that we struggle is everything in our world tells us that we get to define who we are. And not only do we get to do this, we should do this. I mean, think about it. It's, it's even pumped into our children, right? There's a really famous Norwegian modern-day theologian who once said, it's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. And all the Disney fans then said, what's the next line? Okay, there's no Disney fans, okay, cool. Let it go, right? Let it go. Turn away and slam the door. I don't care what they're going to say. Let the storm rage on. The cold never bothered me anyway. I'm gonna give you a pass that you've obviously never seen Frozen, okay? But here's the thing. I'm not picking on Frozen, but this idea, right? This idea is what is being pumped into us beginning as toddlers. This idea of nobody gets to define me but me, right? I get to define me. There's no right, there's no wrong, there are no rules. There's an inward journey of finding the true self and my only hope at ever being happy is to find the true me. And that's being pumped into us constantly. Tim Keller, who is a renowned author, he's a pastor, uh, theologian, he has a book entitled Making Sense of God. And in this book, Keller lists four reasons that this idea of finding your own identity from the inside is toxic and destructive. And I thought that these were good, and I just want to share, share them with you briefly. So here they are real quick, four dangers of self-definition, right? The first one is this, it's incoherent. 
All right, it's unclear. Here's what Keller says. He says, at the deepest part of who you are, there are conflicting loves. You will have multiple dreams and you will not be able to achieve all of them. It's incoherent. It's not clear. You won't know. Think about how unstable this leaves our soul. If you're like, you know, oh, I have to find my meaning, my core, my essence inside of me. We're, we're digging around in those feelings and we're like, oh, I need this. But gosh, this, right? I, I love this as well. I love both these things, but I can't do both of them. Which one do I do? And so it leaves it very incoherent for us. The second thing that he says is that it's unstable. It's unstable. So when I turned 25, I looked back 10 years at 15-year-old Dustin, and I thought, man, that kid was an idiot, right? Like, how is it possible that I am still alive? I mean, just dumb, right? But hey, at 25, I had it all figured out, right? April and I, we, were, we had just gotten married. We knew the direction that God was taking us. Man, we were, we were on our way. But fast forward five years, right? I'm now 30. I look back at 25-year-old Dustin, and I thought, man, that kid was an idiot, right? <laughs> but now, hey, listen, now I'm 30, Right? I, had some, I had some life experiences under my belt and we were in our first church and man, like I was, I was a big deal, right? Now fast forward almost 10 years later and guess what? I look back at 30-year-old Dustin and I think in a lot of ways, man, that dude was an idiot. Now at almost... 40, we, we feel like we are in a real sweet time of life. I, I love my wife more than I ever have before. My, my kids are, are super fun. They're, they're a little crazy, but they're fun, right? But, but here's what I'm convinced of. 10 years from now, I'm gonna look back and I'm gonna think, man, that kid didn't have a clue. But here's the thing. Which one do we trust Right, like my guess is that I will have some issues with 40-year-old Dustin and 50-year-old Dustin and 60-year-old Dustin. At what point do I trust these feelings that are so fickle and change so quickly to self-identify with? So Keller is saying not only is self-defining ourselves incoherent, it's also unstable. But the third thing he would say is it's an illusion. Keller argues that culture never talks about culture itself, but instead lays a grid over the entirety of that culture that informs what they find when they look inside themselves. In other words, you're gonna look at your dreams and your feelings and you're going to self-identify with those things and you're gonna say, here's who I am, world. But when you do that, it feels pure, but it's not because it's an illusion. It's an illusion because it is culturally informed and we don't even know it's happening. It feels pure to us. We're like, I, I feel this, I sense this, uh, this is who I am, but it's, it's an illusion. It's been culturally informed. And finally, uh, number four is this, is it's crushing and it's, an, and it's excluding, right? When, when no God, when no Bible, when no community, when no parents get to help form and shape our identity, all of that weight lands on us. And when the weight of self-identification lands on us, we will 
by nature, take good things and make them ultimate things, right? This is where we end up lifting up our spouses to a level that they can't attain, right? If, if I need my wife to justify me, if I need my wife to help, uh, help me make sense of who I am, if I need my wife to complete me, right, then I am jamming up the relationship from day one. Another way this happens all the time is through children, right? Have you, you, ever, uh, you ever met any parents who live vicariously through their children, right? Where their victories, like the kids' victories, are really the parents' victories? Like they put a lot of pressure on the kids to perform. They, they put a pressure on the kids to mirror back to, to the parents' value and worth in a way that does not enable them to see and form their own identity, Right, self-defining is incoherent, it is unstable, it's an illusion, it's, it's crushing and excluding. And when you live in that spot, you are introduced to our second point this morning, identity compromised. Identity compromised. Now, to illuminate this a little more, we're gonna do a quick case study. So we're gonna flip over to the Old Testament uh, and we're gonna look at a story in the Old Testament of a man who exemplifies compromised identity. His name is Saul and he, is, you know, he was Israel's first king. We're gonna be in 1 Samuel 15, so if you wanna flip over there, uh, we're just gonna kind of summarize that chapter really quick like this morning. So by all accounts... Saul was a very impressive guy. He was, he was chosen to be king because of his good looks. Uh, he had a good reputation. He had upstanding moral character and because he literally stood head and shoulders above everyone. He was the obvious choice for king. And when he was chosen, no one was surprised. And at first, things were going very well. A lot of victories, everyone was happening. Everybody was happy, but then we come to 1 Samuel 15, and we read this in the first three verses there. It says, one day Samuel said to Saul, it was the Lord who told me to anoint you as king of his people Israel. Now listen to this message from the Lord. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies has declared. I have decided to settle accounts with the nation of Amalek for opposing Israel when they came from Egypt. Now go and completely destroy the entire Amalekite nation. Men, women, children, babies, cattle, sheep, goats, camels, and donkeys. So the Amalekites had been the perpetual antagonist of Israel going all the way back to the Exodus. But God would continue to deliver them but for the next three to 400 years, the Amalekites just kept at it. If you read through the history of Israel and Deuteronomy and Joshua and Judges and the first chapters of 1 Samuel, you'll see that the Amalekites are constantly raiding Israel. They were cruel and they were violent. They were exploitive people. And finally, in 1 Samuel 15, God says, I've had enough. The Amalekites are finished. And so verse Seven, King Saul went and he did what God said, sort of. We read in verse seven, then Saul slaughtered the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, east of Egypt. He captured Agag, the Amalekite king, 
but completely destroyed everything else and everyone else. Saul and his men spared Agag's, Agag, Agag's life and kept the best of the sheep and goats, the cattle, the fat calves, and the lambs, everything, in fact, that appealed to them, and they destroyed only what was worthless or of poor quality. Now, realize that, that sparing Agag the king was not an act of mercy. In those days, keeping the enemy kings in your dungeon, dungeon was kind of like sporting trophies, right? Or we would equate it to like mounting the, the head of a deer that you've just shot on your wall, right? You'd bring them out to parties to show people how powerful you are. And this is what Saul planned to do. So, verse 10, God speaks to Samuel, and, and who's, who's God, God's kind of his spokesperson, right? And he says, hey, go say this to Saul. He says, um, then the Lord said to Samuel, I am sorry that I ever made Saul king, for he has not been loyal to me, and he has refused to obey my command. Samuel was deeply moved when he heard this, and he cried out to the Lord all night. But early the next morning, Samuel went to find Saul, and someone told him, Saul went to the town of Carmel to set up a monument to himself. And then he went on to Gilgal, a monument to himself. In Saul's mind, who is this whole thing about? Saul, right? So Saul, he hears that Samuel is coming. He goes out to meet him and he says in verse 13, May the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's command. But Samuel, who is kind of a get-right-down-to-business kind of guy, he skips all the pleasantries and, and just says in verse 14, Well then, if you have performed the commandment of the Lord to destroy everything that belongs to the Amalekites, then what is all the bleeding of sheep and goats and the lowing of cattle that I hear? So Saul replies in verse 15, It's true that the army spared the best of the sheep, goats and cattle, but they're going to sacrifice them to the Lord your God. We have destroyed everything else. Essentially, hey Samuel, don't worry. Yes, we saved some things, but we are going to tithe on it, right? We're giving God the God tax on it, right? And so then we read, uh, to, to kind of finish this up in verse 16, and Samuel said to Saul, stop. Listen to what the Lord told me last night. What did he tell you, Saul asked? And Samuel told him, although you may think a little of yourself, are you not the leader of the tribes of Israel? The Lord has anointed you king of Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and told you, go and completely destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, until they are, they are all dead. Why haven't you obeyed the Lord? Why did you rush for the plunder and do what was evil in the Lord's sight? But I did obey the Lord, Saul insisted. I carried out the mission he gave me. I brought back King Agag, but I destroyed Everything else. And Samuel replies to Saul and he says this. He says, what is more pleasing to the Lord? Your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice. And submission is better than offering the fat of rams. And then in one of the most jolting verses in all of scripture, we read this in verse 23. It says this, it says, rebellion is as sinful as witchcraft and stubbornness as bad as worshiping idols. So because you have rejected the command of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. 
Church, let that sink in. To take part of what belongs to God and act like it belongs to you is equal to witchcraft. It's in the same category in God's eyes. Listen, even if you tithe on it, even if you are religiously active and you come to church every week, even if you are a really good person in every other area of your life, listen, God does not want your religion or your moral behavior or your tithes or your offerings. He wants your surrender. And he deserves the first place in everything. He wants to be the one who you are obeying He wants to be the one you are living for and the one you are seeking to glorify in every dimension of your life, the one you serve and respond to in every relationship. And Saul didn't get that. He compromised his identity and it cost him greatly. And listen, if you are like me, when you read verses like this and you see that selfishness and rebellion are equal to witchcraft in God's eyes, it sends a chill down my spine. Like, we give a lot of lip service to this, like, all sin is equal, right? But when we think about it on this level, that any form of rebellion is equal to witchcraft or idolatry, When we think about it on this level, you realize what an incredible and priceless gift the gospel is to each one of us. You see, when we read things like this, you realize real quick like that we cannot do this thing on our own. We are too filthy. We are too messed up. We are too internally disgusting. And you know what? If you feel that way, you are correct. This is why Jesus is so important because there is only one who can hit that mark and he is the one who stepped in and took your place. He took on your filth and gave you his righteousness so that you could stand redeemed before God. And in him, watch this, in him, you now have a new identity. Well, you say, well, that's great. Well, what is my new identity. Well, I'm really glad you asked because that answer is gonna be, is is found in our closing point this morning and that is this, our identity fulfilled. Identity fulfilled. A few months ago, I was reading a book that had numerous short biographies of men throughout history that that really made some significant impacts. And one of those uh, men I was reading about was a a guy by the name of Eric uh, Liddell. Many of you know his story if you've read or you've seen the movie Chariots of Fire. This is kind of based around him. But uh, Eric was an Olympian runner. uh, But most importantly, he was a strong believer in Christ. In fact, after the Olympics, he actually went to China and he served as a missionary uh, there until he died. But what he's most known for is refusing to run in the gold medal race because the race was being held on the Sabbath. He wouldn't do it. All the focus now on this is on Eric, but there's another runner. His name's Harold Abrahams, who give us some great insight into this idea of fulfilled identity. When interviewed about the race, here's what he said. He says, I have 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. Here's his problem. 
His whole identity is wrapped up in being a runner. Which begs the question then, what happens if he loses that race? You see, when we try to find identity in anything other than who we are in Jesus, it will inevitably send us into a tailspin of not knowing who we are any longer. You see, as followers of Jesus, we don't believe you achieve your identity, but rather you receive your identity. And after you receive this identity, listen to what the Bible says about you. The Bible says that we are esteemed by God. We are adored by him. Romans 8 says we have been adopted as sons and daughters. Zephaniah 3 says God sings over us and rejoices in us. In the book of Psalms, on repeat, you're delighted in, you're delighted in, you're delighted in. Ephesians 2, you're holy and blameless in his sight. In Colossians 1, you are spotless. He never lets us down. He does not fatigue of our failures. We are his sons. We are his daughters. He delights in us. He rejoices in us. He sings over us. And out of the overflow of this, Paul tells us in Colossians 3, in verse 16 and 17, let the message about Christ in all its richness fill our lives. Teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom that he gives. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts and whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father in every interaction. Not just the spiritual ones or the church ones. You should be able to say, I am doing this as a representative of the Lord Jesus. Paul is saying we should be able to say that over literally everything we do. So tomorrow morning when you go and you sit down at your desk chair and you open up your inbox to start your day, you should say, I'm a representative of Jesus Christ. When you meet up with a friend for lunch, you should think I'm a representative of Jesus. A person who tries to merge in traffic ahead of you, I'm a representative of Jesus. You get off work early to go play golf or hang out, catch a movie with friends, I'm a representative of Jesus. You kiss your wife and kids when you get home from work, I'm a representative of Jesus, how you do your schoolwork, what you choose to do with your career, who you date, what you do with your money and the resources that he has given you. I am a representative of Jesus. The point is this, every interaction and every relationship are done first and foremost to Jesus. You live for an audience of one, not just the spiritual church part of your life, there is not one square inch of your life over which Jesus does not emphatically declare mine. But here's the alternative. So I've got some buckets here. Here's the alternative. You, you like many of the Colossians that we've been reading and studying about, uh, you could also compartmentalize your life, right? You think of your life in, in, in buckets, Right, you you have you you know you have the religion bucket, right? This is where Jesus he for sure comes first here, right? This is the this is where where church happens and everything religion. This is the, the, the Jesus bucket right here, right? But then you have the everything else bucket, 
And this is where we store our jobs and this is where we store our, our careers and our happiness and, and our security. All that goes in this bucket. And I mean, yeah, you may think about Jesus a little bit in this bucket, but for sure he is not first and foremost in here. The problem with having a compartmentalized life like this is that when you think of your life in buckets, you tend to then begin to start thinking about religion as a set of obligations that you have to fulfill so you can experience freedom and blessing in these other areas. You, you tend to think of questions like, well, how much do I have to go to church to make God happy? Right? Or... How morally do I have to live so I don't get on his bad side? Or how much money do I have to give to keep God off my back? Well, what Paul is reminding us here in Colossians is that really Jesus owns it all. You should be doing his will as much in this bucket as you are seeking to do it in this bucket. Everything is to be done in the name of the Lord Jesus, first and foremost for an audience of one. Jesus is first, right? He went first in salvation, so he should come first in everything. So, how shall we live? Well, as, as we get ready to close, what, what Paul is challenging us to do is this. is not to have a bunch of different buckets, but just to have one. Jesus is the whole bucket. Every relationship, every decision, Jesus comes first. Billy Graham once said, you cannot build a superstructure on a cracked foundation. And you may say to me this morning, well, this sounds great, but I, I, don't, I don't really know what to do. Like that, that's, I get it, I, Jesus has gotta be first, but how do I do that? Well, let me, can, I just, can I just encourage you with this? Just take a step. Just one step towards this. You know, maybe your step is that you're here this morning and you've never given your life to Jesus, so this Jesus bucket doesn't even exist. And so maybe your step this morning is giving your life to Jesus. You know, maybe... Maybe your step is to go home and apologize to your spouse for treating them like you are not a representative of Jesus. Maybe you haven't been treating them like you represent Jesus. Maybe, maybe your first step is to decide that you're going to be a better employee in December, right? You're just gonna, for this one month, I'm gonna try it, and for every time the water cooler talk starts, I'm walking away. I'm not engaging in that, right? Like, I'm just gonna... That's my one step. I'm gonna try that out, right? Maybe your step is deciding to lead your, your family to the feet of Jesus and truly make him the, the centerpiece of this Christmas season, right? It's December 1st. It's a great time to do this. I saw this little challenge online the other day and we're totally doing this with our family. Like there's 24 chapters in the book of Luke and so we're reading a chapter of Luke every day throughout the month of December so that on Christmas Eve, we literally finish the entire account of Jesus's life. Right? That's an easy thing for you to do. So make some time. Sit down and read. Read the word with your family. Maybe that's your step. I don't know what your step is, but here's, here's, what, I do, here's what I do know. I have a feeling that you know what your step is supposed to be. And so we started this morning by asking the question, what if I could rewrite my life story? Friends, God has been extremely gracious to you 
by giving you that opportunity this morning. So what's your step? Now take it.